Okay. Well, welcome, and I'm gratified to see so many of you here. As I had several texts of people saying they were snowed in, so I was concerned about whether people would make it. I'm glad to see so many of you. Well, welcome to the uh, fourth and the final in this series of salon events on hope. Uh, we started back in May with Gayatri Spivak, had Richard Senate in July, and Chantal Mouf in October. And I'm extremely glad to uh, welcome Peter Osborne, who is going to lead the discussion for this last of the four Salons on Hope uh, in January. So just to introduce, I should introduce myself first. I'm David Cunningham, one of the two organizers with my colleague Mark Smith uh, of, of the Salons. Uh, and the speaker today is Peter Osborne. Uh, Peter's a professor in modern European philosophy at Middlesex University and directs the Centre for Research in Modern European Philosophy there at Middlesex. Uh, he's also uh, an editor of the journal Radical Philosophy, um, and I'm going to hold up a copy of the latest issue so you can all rush out and buy it. That's the first one I have to hold up. Uh, he's author of many books, uh, many articles, uh, which go across philosophy, politics, uh, and art, uh, including the Politics of Time, which was published by Verso in 1995, Philosophy and Cultural Theory, which was published by Routledge in 2000, uh, and the big book in the Feiden series on conceptual art. Uh, he's published massively on uh, conceptual and post-conceptual art, particularly, um, but also on work of the Frankfurt School, Adorno, Benjamin, uh, on questions of time, temporality, and philosophy generally, and most recently, uh, this rather lovely little book in the uh, Office for Contemporary Art Norway series, Verkstead number 11, uh, in which Peter's written the long introduction to Solowitz's sentences on conceptual art with the title which he insisted that I read out, An Image of Romanticism, Fragment and Project. Is it not the title? No, it's fine, it's fine. Fragment and Project in Friedrich Schlegel's <laughs> Athenian Fragments and Solowitz's Sentences on Conceptual Art. Um, so Peter's going to speak for a bit uh, on the theme of hope, and then we will <coughs> open up to general discussion. Peter. Thank you, David. Um, I'm in a very prestigious company in this series, so I'm slightly, slightly worried about the fact that I'm rather skeptical about this concept of hope. And I, um, I thought for a while about trying to um, drum up some enthusiasm for it, um, but I decided to. Uh, to regrets to my standard critical mode, mode and um, I think your thing's turned off. Is it? No, it's turned off. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, I think it's yeah. on. Um, and be a bit sceptical about it um, and see where that gets us. Um, in particular, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat uh, overburdened by the kind of theological freight of the concept, and I think that essentially. One of the things I'm going to suggest is that, um, try as one might, one can't really uh, offload the theological freight of the concept of uh, hope. And that uh, what's really at stake in the concept of hope is the possibility of making some political sense of a, of a theological discourse without religion. The only hope for the concept of hope is if you can make some uh, sense of a theological discourse which is separated from 
from religion. And I'm going to suggest that the concept of hope is actually constituted partly uh, historically at this point in the attempt to separate uh, theology from religion in the, uh, in the late Enlightenment at the end of the 18th century. So um, the, topic, the topic is uh, it's given to me as the significance of hope for contemporary society. Sound of very, very 1950s. Uh, contemporary society. I think I'm perhaps more worried about contemporary society than I am about hope, actually. Um, I'm not really going to talk about contemporary society, which I would, I suppose, translate into something like advanced capitalist societies, but we could talk about that in the discussion. Um, it seems to me that the main... Uh, the main significance of the concept of hope is both, if you like, much broader than this thing called contemporary society, there is such a thing, um, but also much more immediate. Uh, it's much broader because the basic meaning of the concept of hope, as I've suggested, is constituted at the end of the 18th century in the attempt to uh, think what had previously been thought within theological discourses from the standpoint of the Enlightenment concept of reason. And the thing that is, a, that, is, that is to be thought by the concept of hope is the concept of the future. So hope is the concept which in the late 18th century, particularly German Enlightenment, is used to try to secularize the future, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the, the political prospects for the, for the concept of hope uh, rest upon the attempt of, for this secularization. Uh, and as the concept of secularization itself suggests, uh, <coughs> debate about secularization, I'm not going to talk about that. We can talk about it in the discussion. Um, there's something, if you like, problematically non secular about the concept of secularization. I'm not sure if people are familiar with the debate about the concept of secularization, but the problem with the concept of secularization is that it defines the conceptual space, which is to be inhabited in a non-religious way, uh, as historically received by religious forms. So that, in this respect, secularization is internal to, to religion, <coughs> essentially. Secularization is the process of the rationalization of religion. Uh, and the concept of hope, uh, at a more theological level, uh, is, if you like, involved in this same process. So uh, that's, some of, that's, if you like, the broad level. The, the, the more immediate level uh, is really to do with what's happened to what in the 1950s used to be called progressive, since I'm located in the 1950s, progressive political discourses or left political discourses subsequent to uh, the kind of historic defeat of the Western left during the 1980s. Uh, and the concept of hope is, uh, is connected to that process and is inscribed within it insofar as the main uh, kind of discursive effect of that political defeat has been uh, a progressive uh, sort of two-stage uh, displacement of uh, 
the classical concept of politics uh, from first, from a, if you like, a fully political discourse. I'll say what I mean by that in a minute. Uh, first into, into ethics, what people call ethics. They don't really mean ethics. They mean something like liberal political philosophy. Um, and secondly, into, into basically philosophy of religion. If you look at the, if you like, the basic ideological tendencies of fashionable progressive thinkers, this has been the, the kind of staged move in the last in the last two decades, the move, the, the recoding of politics as an ethical discourse, and then the recoding of ethics in terms of culturalist discourses of religion. Yeah. Obviously, um, Zizek would be a main culprit here, but let's not give him too much too much credit because it's a it's a um, it's a it's a much more general um, cultural intellectual tendency, and, and hope is a very important concept uh, in relation to this transformation of politics into religion via ethics, insofar as the concept of hope is constituted in the point of transition between ethical and religious discourses. And the reason that there's a problem with the concept of hope for me is because it's not clear um, that it's ambiguous, it's perhaps productively ambiguous place between ethic and, ethical and, and religious discourses, whether it can be disengaged from these, these religious discourses. Uh, and it's connected, it's connected to ethics because the concept of hope uh, emerges as a central concept uh, in Enlightenment um, philosophy, primarily as the basic concept of moral theology. Uh, I'll say a bit more about this. Uh, a bit later, but moral theology as opposed to natural theology of a kind of enlightenment mode like Hume, or speculative theology in its like, classical, rational way. So hope, hope is basically a concept of moral theology. Uh, and so how we feel about hope will really <coughs> depend on how we feel about moral theology. What's interesting about a lot of the political discourses of hope outside of the Latin American concept Sorry, a continent where in Latin America it's quite explicitly, uh, you know, discourse of liberation theology. So it's a, it is, it's an avowedly theological concept. Well, what's peculiar outside the Latin American concept, the Latin American continent, is that is that the um, this moral theological uh, constitution of the concept of hope is largely uh, suppressed. So that the concept of hope is used a lot in. Um, current political discourses, but without really being examined as a concept. So, you know, there are a lot of books, when I looked at yesterday, to see if there's anything about hope. Books like David Harvey's Spaces of Hope is actually a book about space in, in the con located, the word hope registers, if you like, the conceptual gap of the discourse of space, which is, if you like, after the collapse of a certain political discourse and hope is the sign for the collapse of that political discourse. So hope is rather peculiar because hope, hope seems to be an affirmative, positive, future-oriented concept, uh, and yet it, it functionally it works to occupy the space uh, of defeat and displacement from politics. That's my, that's my thought. Um, 
So, to put it into its context, which is its historical context, which is in a way strictly Kantian, it's what Kant called religion within the bounds of reason alone, which is a type of Kantian myth. In the 1790s, the issue in a way is still, if you like, Kant, you know, for hope, is whether, if you like, hope rationalizes religion. The notion of religion within the bounds of reason was a progressive notion at the end of the 18th century because uh, at the end of the 18th century, if you like, religion was the given. So the, the idea of a religion within the bounds of reason uh, was essentially a progressive notion since it involved the subjection of the given, namely religion, to reason. So it denotes a transition, if you like, from unreflective to rationalized <laughs> religious consciousness. On the other hand, religion within the bounds of reason alone in advanced capitalist societies in 2010 essentially denotes a move within reason away from politics, economics, and history back to religion, albeit within the bounds of reason. So this concept of religion within the bounds of reason alone uh, has a completely different political valence uh, depending on its political, its historical circumstances. Okay, so um, you've probably already got the idea, which is that, um, which is that what I'm going to broadly suggest is that is that hope. Is essentially, you know, one of the main signifiers of the conservatism of our ideological climate, and uh, the intervening twelve, well, not twelve, six months in psychiatry, I think it was here, um, it's been helpful to me in this regard, insofar as I can now claim that that Obama is the figure of conservatism <laughs> of hope. Um, I don't think we need to disagree about that anymore. Uh, and that's not uh, that's not because he and some other people are still hoping a lot. Um, it's it's because hope is itself this displacement of politics. So the question is, is like what's going on in the displacement of a political relation to the future to a hopeful relation to the future? Um, that's the that's the issue. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to make all kinds of remark according to this. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Um, the first is I'm just going to say something, something basic about the concept of hope. I mean, what, what, what does hope mean? And I'm going to say something uh, possibly more tedious about what it meant in the late 18th century, about how, how hope becomes to constitute the philosophy of religion, which you can take or, or leave. Um, and then I'll say something briefly uh, about Kafka, because Kafka, in a way, I think is the key, the key figure for updating the Enlightenment um, philosophy of religion, the Enlightenment concept of hope. Because, it, because in Kafka, uh, I'm thinking in particular of Walter Benjamin's reading of Kafka, um, Kafka offers us a kind of nihilistic theology of hope, a kind of nihilistic negative theology of hope. Uh, so, insofar as there's, there's a kind of uh, more intellectually robust discourse about hope, um, I think it's to be found in, in Kafka. But it's to be found in Kafka 
partly because of the, the uh, important uh, claim that Kafka made and that's, that's reported by Benjamin in his essay on Kafka, uh, where, which comes from Max Brod's diaries and his, and his conversations with Kafka, which is uh, Brod is always trying to uh, persuade Kafka that his work is about hope, uh, and Kafka is always denying this. And at, at the end of a long conversation, Kafka acknowledges, yes, hope is, his work is in some sense about hope, and so Brod is very pleased about this. And he thinks, yes, finally I've secured this, um, this position that Kafka's work about hope. Uh, and then Kafka says, yeah, but the thing is, the hope is not for us. I, I want to come back to this at the end, because in a sense, the concept of hope, which I think can be maintained um, in the face of these rather uh, more hopeful and conservative discourses about hope, is this negative, this nihilistic negative theological concept of hope, uh, in which there is hope, but it's not for us. And so the question is, well, what is it for? Okay. And then if, if there's time at the end, I might say something about art, but I don't know about that. Art is involved. Um, okay, just to say something about hope and why it's a, it's a, it's a problematic concept. Um, if you look at uh, you know, dictionaries and encyclopedias, conceptual histories, if you look at, the, look at the concept of hope, you generally get a version of a very simple uh, definition of, of a modern definition of hope, which is that it's some form of combination of desire and expectation. Yeah. Uh, and it looks like a it looks like a fairly straightforward concept insofar as hope is desire combined with expectation. Right. Um, the reason that the reason that hope is a problematic concept um, is of course that desire has an inherent tendency to exceed expectation. Right? I mean, it's only in exceeding expectation that in some sense desire is desire. Right? Something constitutively excessive about desire with regard to rational expectation. Um, in this respect, the concept of hope as a combination of desire and expectation has a kind of inherent tension which one could push to the point of a of an inherent contradiction. In other words, hope is constituted as an attempt to resolve the co a contradiction between desire and expectation. It's an attempt to resolve, uh, if you like, the excess of desire over expectation back into expectation. Yeah. Hope is what allows you to think the possibility of the realization of your desire when, if you reflect on it rationally, you don't have much, actually, much expectation of it being fulfilled. Right. Um, now, in, in that respect, hope is obviously existentially constitutive of a great deal of our lives. <laughs> um, insofar as we probably don't have much rational expectation of very many of our desires being fulfilled. <laughs> Nonetheless, we like to think about it. 
And thinking about the possibility of the fulfillment of those desires is essentially to inhabit the space of hope. Um, that's the basic structure of the concept. Um, and it raises, it raises a problem, which is, if you like, well, what's the, or a dilemma, if you like, which is, well, what's the point at which desire comes to overdetermine expectation? What's the point at which, if you like, uh, your expectation becomes irrational? Uh, and, and in particular, this, uh, this contradictory relation between desire and expectation suggests something which, I, which I'm going to claim about hope, which is that the concept of hope in this contradiction between desire and expectation um, harbors a kind of constitutive illusion. Because to hope is to believe in the fulfillment of something which will not be fulfilled. So only insofar as you, as you enter into a certain space of illusion can you hope. Right? You, you need to be able to invest imaginarily in this fulfillment of the desire that may not be, uh, may not be fulfilled. And that's what's interesting about hope. And it's what... Uh, it's what's... Uh, Ineliminable about it. It's why, in some sense, however, the, the discourse of hope might be functioning politically, <coughs> you can't get rid of the discourse of hope from a kind of existential relation to the world. Well, particularly, what I, what, I, what I want to suggest is that because this illusion, this illusory quality of hope, is constitutive, because it's constituted by its resolution of the excess of desire over expectation back into expectation. That's the sort of circular structure of hope. Um, that there's something transcendental about the, about the kind of illusion of hope. Uh, and what I mean by transcendental illusion is, is, that, is that it's a necessary illusion. Okay, I'll this, this idea from Kant. A transcendental illusion is an illusion that, is, that you cannot be rid of. Okay? You cannot be rid of it even when you know it's an illusion. Okay. So even when you know your desire will not be fulfilled, you cannot actually not continue to hope that it will. Right? In other words, that the, that the cognitive demystification of transcendental illusion has no existential effect on your investment in the hope. Um, this is the sense in which, if you like, we are in the grip of hope, despite ourselves. Um, and insofar as this, uh, this notion of transcendental illusion is historically the philosophical model for the concept of ideology, because ideology is, if you like, a socially necessary illusion. Ideology is just a socialization of transcendental illusion. Um, insofar as ideology is just the socialization of transcendental illusion and transcendental hope is a transcendental illusion then there's a sense in which hope is if you like the paradigmatic ideological concept it's the uh, it's the prime example of an ideological concept okay but <laughs> 
to think about this a bit more, let's just backtrack to the, to the concept of expectation um, and think about how, how, it, how it was historically that desire came to be uh, connected to expectation, which is like, that's the connection which constitutes the concept of hope. And then, if you like, how, uh, how historically it becomes increasingly disjunctive. Because what's interesting about hope, uh, like hope in modernity, is that despite this conjunction of desire and expectation, it's both, it's going to sound like a Deleuze now, it's a dangerous moment, um, it's both conjunctive and disjunctive. It's, a, it's what Deleuze calls a, a disjunctive conjunction. Yeah. Desire and expectation are held together by the manner in which they're held apart. Um, but it doesn't start like that. They start in a much more um, in a much more integrated way, and that's because of the theological concept, the theological context of the original of the original notion. Um, and we can see we can see this really in um, in the philosophy of expectation. And the philosophy of expectation is really a discourse that begins with Augustine and Augustine's Confessions. It turns out when you do philosophy intellectually. Everything that you're told begins somewhere else. Eventually, always turns out to actually begin in Augustine's Confessions. <laughs> Someone should tell you this at the beginning. You read Augustine's Confessions. I'd like save you five years. <laughs> good advice. Um, and you get the um, you get the basic philosophical definition of expectation in, in, in Augustine's Confessions uh, when. Um, Augustine defines, defines expectation as the present time of future things. Okay. This is an important uh, notion because it's the concept of expectation which is, which is carried forward and all the way through to, um, to 20th century you know, phenomenologies of expectation. They're all transformations, modifications, developments in many ways of, of, of Augustine and this notion of the the present time of future things. Now what's interesting about Augustine's notion uh, of expectations of the present time of future things is that because of the theological con context of Augustine's thought, um, that is to say, the standpoint of eternity, the theological standpoint of eternity, there's no problem for Augustine about the existence of future things. Right? In other words, the reason that expectation is not originally a political concept is because theologically, the standpoint of eternity secures the existence of future things in advance. Because future things are, if you like, already viewed from the standpoint of eternity. They're already present to the standpoint of, of eternity. <coughs> so that Christian theology doesn't really have much problem with the future. Right? Because from God's point of view, there's nothing particularly peculiar about the future things as opposed to past things. They're all, if you like, ontologically on the same level. It's only a problem for us. Okay? Um, so expectation is not a political concept because the only, the only issue about the future is not the existence of the future things. It's whether within this Christian discourse, particular Christians uh, are going to be able to establish the appropriate relationship to these future things. Uh, that's not a political issue, that's a, that's a, that's a religious issue. Um, so that the ground of hope in, in, in its original theological post-Pauline context is faith. 
Uh, this is why I have a problem with this course. But can we ever get rid of this ultimate ground of power, which is faith? Because it's faith which sustains the standpoint of eternity, which is in which future things are not a problem. So the, fu- the future is theologically secure. It's just your personal relationship that it's problematic. But what happens, if you like, in the, the history of enlightenment, which in a sense also begins with Augustine, because everything is going to turn out to begin with Augustine. Um, what happens in the future, future of enlightenment is, is that this, uh, the security of belief in future things becomes progressively undermined. Uh, and the future becomes, uh, in the enlightenment, uh, progressively a problem. In other words, with, if you like, with the with the recession of the standpoint of eternity and the like, growing humanism of enlightenment reason, human relation to the future becomes to increasingly constitute the concept of the future. So that instead of future things being not ontologically problematic, but in some sense having the same status as past or present things, future, future things become uh, much, less, uh, much less stable. And there's this disjunction between between the future, um, the future and the present. And essentially what the Enlightenment philosophy of history does, which is like the basis of the modern concept of politics, is attempt a secular appropriation of future things. That's what the Enlightenment tried to do. The question in any way is, did it succeed? Are we still, or are we still stuck there? It tried, it tried to appropriate uh, future things to the standpoint uh, of reason via history. And that's the point at which politics, if you like, replaces theology. Because uh, what, uh, what actually is a phrase of Kant, which is quite interesting, what Kant called political prophecy becomes a substitute for theology. In other words, discourses about the future become dependent upon action in the present. And as soon as discourses about the future become dependent upon action in the present, then the future becomes a political, not a theological concept. Uh, and hope, which is the concept through which we relate, or a combination of our desire and our expectation, has to be placed into this political context. And that's, the, that's if you like, the issue. What happens to hope? When it, can it make this transition from theology uh, to politics? Uh, and what's distinctive, if you like, about modernity in relation to the philosophy of hope is that, is that whereas in Christian theology the future, the existence of future things is secured, in modernity we hope precisely because the future things is not secured. So we're hoping for the opposite reason. Theologically, we're hoping about something which, which is not a problem, which is future things. We're hoping that we personally can have the right relation to them. In modernity, we're hoping that particular futures might occur. Yeah. So that there's, this, there's this displacement uh, of future things onto us. And that, that constitutes a properly historical discourse of politics. Um, and when I talk about this recent displacement of politics to ethics and then to religion, that's partly that's partly going on there. Is if you like the uh, abrogation of the responsibility for future things, the political responsibility for future things, 
a displacement of responsibility for the future from politics onto, onto other discourses. So something peculiar happens in the, in, in the relative to the philosophy of uh, hope, which is that we start to hope for things uh, not which are defined from the standpoint of eternity as, as future things, but we, we start to hope primarily for the things which we have no rational grounds for believing might happen. Right? In other words, and this is the origin of the, of the Kafka problematic in a way, we start to hope the things that we really hope for yeah, are the things that are hopeless, that we are hopeless about. Right? So hope re-emerges in the space of political discourse after 1989 because what we hope for is fundamental social transformation. And why do we hope for it? Because we can no longer have it. Right? It's the thing we can't have. Okay. So, so the objects of hope are in some sense constituted by their unavailability. And that's the sense in which, uh, by the mode of its occupation of political space, hope kind of uh, hope. Uh, this also sort of devalues politics. Is that it takes away the potency of politics, takes away the uh, its connection to, to, to practice in some way. Um, am I doing for time? Five minutes. Five more minutes. Okay. You're lucky because I'm going to skip the cat. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> it's probably the only way to go. Um, <coughs> we can come back to it in the discussion. And fetishists can ask me a question about Okay, two, two, two brief points, partly in relation to Kafka, about this, about this modern discourse, and then something about art. Um, it, and it's because it's because what we hope for is the thing we can no longer have, right? That constitutes the modern concept of hope. That the modern concept of hope is connected to utopia, right? And that if, like, the main place that you will find philosophical and political discourses about hope from the 1920s onwards is essentially utopian studies. Yeah? Hope becomes connected to utopia, uh, and it's the it's like it's the utopian nature of what is hoped for, which if you like registers that break with the with the theological problematic. So. Hope becomes utopian, uh, and furthermore, though, hope retains by virtue of its utopianism, and this is, this is important and I'm not quite sure what to make of it, you can tell me what you think about it. Um, and what, it, what it's able to retain as a consequence of its utopianism, what it's able to retain uh, from the theological discourse, but in a problematic way politically, uh, is its relationship, is, it, is a certain relationship to death. 
and a certain uh, there's a certain structural tendency within utopian discourse <coughs> to attempt to, uh, to to imagine non-theological versions of immortality. In, in, in the discussion about utopia, between the, the famous conversation between Adorno and Lance Fox about, about utopia, Adorno insists on the fact that uh, the abolition of death is constitutive of the concept of utopia. Right? Or if you like, the wish for the abolition of death is constitutive of the concept of utopia. That's, if you like, what is carried forward from the theological concept of, of immortality, from theological discourse. Because if you like, only if you imagine the abolition of death <coughs> can you have a certain kind of relationship to the future. One of the things that is interesting but problematic about the utopian concept of politics is that they essentially insist that really you cannot practically relate radically freely to the, to the, to the future other than, other than on the basis of the presumption of the abolition of death. In other words, Politics in a world historical sense makes no sense unless you imaginarily occupy this space. Uh, and that, that's the sense in which, you know, someone like Ernst Bloch is a kind of, you know, Leninist Christian. Uh, and this kind of Leninist Christianity, or Christian Leninism, might be better way of putting it, um, this kind of Christian Bolshevism you know, is very powerful, but it's the, op it's the opposite to this nihilistic uh, negative theology of hope that you get in Kafka, for whom, for whom hope, hope is there, but hope is constitutive of our, of our current situation insofar as it is a concept of hope which reveals to us the hopelessness of our situation. Okay? So, to, so if, like, we are, our lives are constituted as hopeless, by virtue of being viewed from the optic of the concept of hope, is the critical function of hope to let us know just how hopeless life is. Right? Uh, and that's the sense in which you know, Kafka says, hope is not for us. And of course, hope isn't for us. Hope isn't for us because we will be dead. I mean, politically, we will always be dead too soon. Right? In other words, the, the, the enlightenment philosophy of history, the, the the modern transformation of the classical concept of politics as the constitution of the social from a kind of ontological timeless domain into history means that we must engage in a politics the outcome of which we will never see. And one of the, one of the problems for... Uh, whatever you like, the aporias of left politics under conditions of commodification is that we have become the kind of people who wish our desires to be realized during our lifetime. <laughs> and insofar as we have become the kind of people who wish 
our fundamental desires to be realized in our lifetime. In other words, we're the kind of people who want to be the subjects of fulfillment of our own desire, which is a kind of sad thing in some ways in relation to desire. It's as far as you have become the, you know, the kind of subject that wishes the, for the fulfillment of your own desire, then you have become a fundamentally apolitical subject. Because essentially, you have become a subject that cannot relate your desire to the future, politically, the future after your death. Oh, I'm an immensely cheerful note. That's <laughs> <laughs> a word back out. I shall conclude. That's great, thank you, Peter. <laughs> Well, I think I shall just immediately open the floor up. Oh, gosh, people are already... Um, just to say, if people want to get drinks while we're talking, that's fine. Do feel free, including Peter. Um, I was going to say get me one, but I could have... OK. Um, Andy. I wondered if you could um, say a bit more about what I think is the, the, internal, the, the internal inflection which would develop further that um, account, which I agree with, which would be that the, the real issue is this, if that secret cargo in that history is the struggle over the concept of grace. So, so the, the issue, say, for example, of in Augustine against Pelagius is whether you can act morally and you can earn salvation. And this is then the, you know, and then the dispute is, no, you can't, you're fallen. Yeah. It's only with the intervention of God. Yeah. The concept of hope is riven around this, whether it's an orientation for practical action or whether one can only await the arrival of something you can't control. So whether it's the debate between Erasmus and Luther, whether it's Pascal's wager, which in some sense is an attempt to manage the problem of hope along that axis, that works its way in a trajectory up to and including uh, Kafka. And in a certain sense, the problem of hope in this sense is this issue of distension between two competing, between competing demands. So the, the difference between a, kind of a modern conception of stoicism would be this realizing desires in lifetime and managing them and looking back to Epicurus and these notions of ataraxia and regulating desires compared to a more broader issue about the demands of collective uh, action and possibility, which would disrupt that purely, uh, that purely uh, individual focus. Um, and what it seems to me is interesting then about this, this trajectory, which in a certain sense you could understand as you know, a, a neo-Jansenism, you know, whether it's in the cinema of Bergson, Bresson, etc., or in Kafka, is this, a, a certain sense, an, iconic, an iconoclasm of hope, in that it's a ban on the idea of it, the image of it, as something which orients practical action as a goal, or an outcome. Um, and just, just to kind of conclude that, I think to touch on what you said at the end about this um, desire for the abolition of death, I think that is kind of contemporary because certainly the, the earlier um, perhaps hope would be for this notion, a more clear notion of peace. You know, so the Wartner Balder, Ruhest du Auch in the, from the Goethe and the, the concept of perpetual peace in Kant, yeah. and the wish for a peaceful life, a peaceful death, which can't come until the competing demands arrive, is a different kind of notion of hope, which doesn't have this um, kind of utopian edge in the same way. 
You know, I mean, the, 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 I mean, the issue in terms of this, you know, transformation of hope from theological concept, say Augustine, to, to a post-Kantian concept, is whether whether you can get rid of the concept of grace. I mean, that's the issue right there, because, because it's through grace that the individual, if you like, relates to the, to future things. Um, And, and insofar as there is a politics, it is it is it is the functional collective substitute for grace at the level of the individual. Um, I mean, the, the question about whether Kant has a concept of grace. I mean, I mean, the kind of thinks he does. I don't really think he does. Um, <coughs> in a way, Kant. Kant tries to replace the concept of grace with the notion of, of, of the purity of will. Okay. So, so the, the purity of will is the, is, the, uh, is the substitute, but that's because <coughs> Kant is still thinking this problematic approach at the level of the individual, because in a, in a, when, when in this, you know, there's a famous bit of, towards the end of the particular pure reason where Kant has that there are three basic philosophical questions. What can I know? What, what should I do? And, and what may I hope? Okay, these are his three basic philosophical questions. Um, no, not what, what, we, what may we hope? What may we hope? But, what, but when you get to the, to the bottom of the page and he glosses the question in a longer form, he says, what, we, what he means by what may we hope is... Uh, I this. Um, if I act as I should, what may I hope? So that the we, what, we, what may we hope is, if you like, dissolved into the multiplicity of individual hopes, and, and your and and it's, if you like, your ability to hope, or if you like, your right to hope is dependent upon your moral conduct. Okay. That's the sense in which this is a transition between. It's the sense in which moral discourse is, in my view, always a transition between theological and political discourse. Yeah. Morality is where you go when you're trying to escape theology but haven't yet reached politics. You can't make sense of politics. Um, and that, that's what's happening in that. Um, in that context, these other, you know, Bergson, etc., these these other, you know, Janssen's thinkers, this is still a this is a continuation of a, of a pure theological tradition. What's what's interesting about Kafka is that is that Kafka is Kafka is a kind of nihilistic negative theologian. He's not really uh, grace, and Kafka is a kind of joke. Um, I mean, in the sense in which all of these structures become comic in Kafka. Um, because from the standpoint of the modern individual, the arbitrariness of you know, grace appears as arbitrary, yeah, as the way in which bureaucracies treat, treat them in the trial. Right? In other words, God, God, God. God's ability to, if you like, alter your... God is an arbitrary figure right? as bureaucracy. So in a way, you know, and that's the joke, in a way, Kafka. Right? Um, that's the sense in which this theology is realistic. Um, I'm not sure if I'm answering this question, but I'm 
can't remember the question for it, but I talked a bit. John. Thanks. Um, well, I wanted to, to bring in art, and I wanted to bring in the artist. Um, and in the context of, of the end of the 18th century, that got me thinking about Turner, the figure of Turner, who writes textual accompaniments to his paintings, his, because he's in the business of creating spaces of illusion in the form of his paintings, but sort of as a pendant to that, that public production, there's this private discourse of the fallacies of hope, which is this long, unfinished poem which he produces. And it, we don't know whether he believes that all hope is fallacious or whether the fallacies of hope refers to the fallacious aspects of hope, yeah. because we don't see the whole poem. So it's, it, in one sense, it's this kind of private doubting subjectivity as opposed to this public undoubting sort of uh, production that's, that's going on in terms of, of his paintings. And, and what's often forgotten about um, Turner in that sense is, one, obviously this, these texts were done as image and text, basically, as we'd understand them now. Almost. They, they, the poems went alongside the paintings. Proto-Victor Virgin and, and the other thing is that they, they, he starts publishing them. For, for the first part, he, he writes these things in private, and then he starts publishing fragments of them. And so the whole long poem remains unpublished in its entirety and never has been yeah, okay. in 1812, at the point of sort of Napoleon's, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the pinnacle of Napoleon's uh, power and influence sort of thing. So there's a sense of... of he believes in the sort of imminent decline in, in British power and, and British, you know, life. But in, in another way, I think it's sort of this idea of what you mentioned earlier, of the, the objects of hope as, as constituted by its, its unavailability. There's a sort of strange kind of flip to that in the sense that the, the subject of the artist is in one sense a fallacious subject which is available. To, to people, it makes you know one, one as an artist makes oneself available and parades oneself in some way more so than the sort of the object of the art. What's become important, uh, it, it, not as a sort of uh, belief, but in terms of, of sort of an activity as being an artist has become incredibly important since 1989. And I wondered whether you, you perhaps sort of could see something in relation to perhaps an inversion of what's gone on or what went on with Turner in some ways, so or whether there's some sort of something to be learned from that in terms of a shift in emphasis between the subject on the one hand and the object of art on the other. Does that make sense? Or? This is a really difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll say something about art and the artist to, to escape this question about Turner, which I don't want to say much about Turner. Um, well, in, in, relation, in relation to hope and the utopian discourses of hope, which, which are obviously, you know, have primarily been about prioritizing art as a social practice in the present, which prefigures the future. So, so insofar as there are practices of hope, which are, if you like, not explicitly political practices of future creating, yeah, of creating um, conditions of future happiness, it's art in that tradition. Okay. Um, but both the freedom and the hope, as understood within this tradition, reside in the art and not the artist. Right? So, I get to repeat my mantra here, which I need to say to art students every day, which is on the mirror 
in the bathroom. Art, not the artist. Um, it's all about the art, not the artist, right? Um, in other words, it's the, it's the art which is the, you know, what Bloch's translators rather contortedly call the you know, anticipatory illumination, okay, of the future or, you know, the pre-appearance, the foreshine, that's really a more simple term in Bloch. The pre-appearance of the future, uh, which is art's relation to hope, is in the art and not the artist. And insofar as there is, if you like, insofar as the practice of the artist embodies a form of freedom which is connected to hope, yeah, it gains social existence only in, only its, in its embedded, in, embeddedness <coughs> in the work. So, so the artist drops out exhausted, um, and the, the hope is in, is in the work. Um, I mean, it's interesting what you say about no, Turner. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of I'm saying the opposite, really. really. Poem, it, I'm sort of saying that, in a way, the, the, the point in Turner's life, the, the paintings were objects of hope. And in one sense, what we see in the terms of the figure of the artist, as opposed to the art, is is the possibility of being fallacious in public. Well, when you say in terms of life, they were the object of hope, but the object of hope, Sorry, sir, yeah. When you say they were the object of hope, what do you mean? Well, in the sense that, despite his private doubts, in public he was creating these illusory spaces, which are the things which are, have, have lasted. And, you know, by your own yeah. argument about hope being an illusory space, I mean, yeah, he, no, he produced these objects yeah, of... In, in block sense, they are, yeah, are pre-appearances. But what I'm saying is, in a way... Post-89, there's been a sort of interest, an, an emphasis, a new emphasis upon the, the, the hoping subject, the artist, the fallacious subject, the fool, oh, yes, the sorry, fool this, in public. Yes, yeah, but this, this, this is just, sorry, I should have said this before. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, if you like, that's the third term of the displacement of politics. It's just that it's not been, um, if you like, ideologically so... Uh, so insistent. I mean, in a way, it's the traditional term. I mean, the, the traditional place for the displacement of politics, or the displacement of the desire for politics, when politics becomes impossible, has been art. Um, so the displacements into ethics and religion, in a way, accompany the traditional displacement into art. So that the you know the explosion of art after '89 is a kind of empirical confirmation of the end of politics. Right? And the, um, the attempt to construct bodies <coughs> of that art as political is further confirmation of that displacement and negation. <coughs> but that's not a critique of the art. It's a critique of the illusions, certain illusions about the art. Well, I'm never too worried about artists themselves because they can look after themselves. Um, <laughs> I'm not worried about the artist. I'm worried about the art. <laughs> yeah, I'm not worried about the artist either. Um, but, but surely it could be a critique of the art as well, in a sense that um, I, I was. 
Okay, well, okay, some of it. M the majority of it, perhaps. But I I'm wondering about these terms, um, Christian, uh, and I'm probably quoting you slightly wrong, Christian Leninism and, Chris and, and kind of, you know. Uh, but what also, I'm wondering whether that, that is a term or those terms, that set of terms you used, might be directly transferable onto contemporary art, in a sense. If, if one follows the logic of the, the post-89 logic that you've just yeah, no, suggested think, yeah, that I agree with, yeah, which is that um, after 1989, then what happens is the kind of the, the staging of, of hope in the face of hopelessness becomes the job of the artist or I would say the artwork, not the artist, but the artwork. Yeah. I mean, okay, produced by the artist. Sorry, artists in the room. Um, but it, it, it would seem to me that, that absolutely to think about that as a kind of Christian Leninism is a, is a perfect kind of way of describing contemporary art right now. But, but, the thing is, but the thing is that blocks Christian Leninism, as I tended into, blocks, it's a form of messianism, right? Um, and so it has more of a, this is not messianic, this art, is it? I don't think this art is messianic. Um, Bloch is messianic, and he's basically doing a fairly kind of simple transposition, kind of homology of Christian discourses and messianism onto Bolshevism, so that the party becomes the kind of proto-messianic, etc. Um, you know, and that's why, ben, I mean, unfortunately, maybe one of the most important early works of Benjamin is we don't have anymore, which is his critique of... Um, Spirit of Utopia, in which he was, you know, determined to make this distinction between Christian messianism. We only have the descriptions in the letters of, it, of the distinction between Christian and Jewish messianism. And, it, and he, people then and still do tend to run Bloch and Benjamin together as messianic German thinkers who kind of thought theology of politics. But but for Benjamin, they were completely opposed because Bloch was a, was a messianic, was a Christian in the sense that he thought within the horizon of the arrival of the Messiah and the revolution was going to be the arrival of the Messiah and then there was going to be communism after the revolution. Whereas, of course, the, you know, the, the more mystical, negative, theological Messiah of the part of Judaism that Benjamin associated himself with through Sholem, the Messiah is he's not going to turn up. Right? He's not coming. Um, but if you, but if you, um, what you're doing is kind of rehistoricizing that, and yeah, I understand that. But if you uncouple it a little bit from Bloch and Benjamin and think about it in a post-89 sense, then it becomes a very adequate description of what's happening in contemporary. But I don't think they're messianic. Okay. That's the thing. But they could be kind of, if, if they, they could be kind of limited in some kind of messianic, spatially and temporally kind of limited messianism or something. I would like them to be messianic. Um, oh, well. I mean, they are, I mean, you see, I mean, but I mean, this is a serious point politically because, in a way, there is a currently viable political messianism, you know, which is very active in world politics. It's probably the, one of the main forces in world politics. It's sheer messianism, right? Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to quote what is what's considered to be the most absurd element of uh, a talk by Kojin Karatani recently. I actually thought the most interesting thing he said, which was, um, which was basically that um, it was a critique of Negri, right? You know, that that if, if you're looking for the multitude, there is, there is only one multitude, and it's Al Qaeda. Right? In other words, there, there is a politics of messianism, and it is real. It's sheer messianism, and, and I don't think that any of these. Um, 
is post-89 displaced Western politics into art, kind of hopeful things. In a way, have begun to engage. The only people who engage with this in the Western art world are you know, Wally Rod, Post Atlas Group, and Catherine David, right? Which is why they're the most, two most interesting people currently, probably, because they understand, in a way, that insofar as these discourses between, you know, these inherited discourses between theology, politics, and art have an actuality, that that's where they have an actuality. Hi, um, I'm a sustainability practitioner and went to the Copenhagen Climate Talks and they rebranded Copenhagen Hopenhagen um, and so I went out there really, really excited that um, our political leaders would actually come up with a strong deal for carbon reduction and they didn't but still here in 2010 I'm still hoping that um, exactly. kind of so, and then you're talking about hopelessness and kind of I don't know what your thoughts are on climate change and philosophy and what it represents at the moment. You know, I was marching with 100,000 people um, through the streets of Copenhagen. Wow, what do I think about climate change? <laughs> it's obviously very important, but insofar as hoping is the mode, it's a non it hasn't begun. Do you think so? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Because hoping is the mode of displacement. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Peter. The I mean, I think, sorry, I'm going to say one, one, one other thing about that, which is that, I mean, I think it's, it's quite funny because I think there will be a lot of um, staging of, in, in like the spaces of representational politics about this. Okay. And then climate change will get real at the point of which we have the first war based on climate change. That is the point at which the politics of climate change will begin. Which will be probably quite soon. We'll see. Um, thank you for the talk, Peter. Um, it's unfortunate that she didn't get to go further, especially with the Kantian aspect. Yeah? Other people are relieved. It's okay. yeah. <laughs> Although it's really important, I think, uh, regarding some of the writing that you've already done regarding uh, post-conceptual art. I'd love to ask you about something about that, but just to stick to this, you asked, you, you indicated very clearly in the beginning that hope is what thinks the future. You said clearly. Yeah, hope thinks the future. Hope, the time, no, that's, that's Augustine's definition of expectation, that the, the presence of future things. I think the curse is somewhere like hope is future time, I think, is, is from the curse formulation. But anyway, yeah. Okay, I'm just wondering about hope having its relationship with a critical capacity to reflect. Um, yeah. Without going any further into yeah, that, yeah, yeah, keeping yeah, that simply, yeah, yeah, could you elaborate anything? Yeah, that's a good. I mean, that, that's the way that um, that recur tries to redeem Kant's, if you like, philosophy of religion of hope for uh, 
a non, uh, for a purely philosophical discourse, right? In other words, what Ricoeur tries to do, particularly this happened in the 60s in a few essays on, um, on Kant's philosophy of religion, what Ricoeur tries to do is say essentially that <coughs> that reflection on the Kantian discourse of hope, that is, if you like, reflection is this, is this rational act, itself, a, a, and reflection on the limits of the discourse of hope will redeem hope from its theological, from its, if you like, religious side for philosophy. But whenever, whenever someone like Ricoeur says that, you've got to be really worried because, because Ricoeur's main... Uh, main philosophical project, in a way, is to, is to demonstrate the ultimate aporia of philosophy and the need to return to religious experience. So, so that if, you, if you read Ricoeur's books, they're always fantastic until the last five pages, in which it, it, it turns out that actually the lesson to be learned from the limits of philosophical reflection is that you need a religious experience. Um, and the question is, if we just cut off the last five pages of all the books, which is what I try to do, you know, can we hang on to this stuff? Or if you like, are, there, are, are all those books, you know, like, just driving towards these last five pages? It's, it's just cutting them off, a bit of an illusion, things like that. Um, but yeah, then reflection is, reflection is, the, is the critical mechanism for the appropriation of hope from its basis in religious experience or its enlightenment pseudo-religious experience which is the experience of pure will the experience of your own morality essentially in the, in the enlightenment your experience of your own morality is the functional substitute for religious experience um, and, and, and he thinks so but I'm not so uh, I'm not so sure but the, but the point is that you know, my own view, of, my own position on this is that hope is a transcendental illusion. And if hope is a transcendental illusion, then we're stuck with it. Right? You can't... So that if, it's, if hope is a transcendental illusion, if hope is constituted by this desire to resolve the excessive desire over expectation back into desire, that's a desire for the fulfillment of desire, so a double desire, um, then in a sense, the only thing we can do is, if you like, decide what we, how to orientate ourselves towards it and what we think about it. We can't get rid of it. Uh, we can't not hope. It doesn't make sense to not hope. We're not the kinds of beings that can not hope. Um, the, the question is whether our hopes, whether hope is private. That's the question. The question is whether hope can be can be this mechanism, which is just some people have historically tried to be, to mediate the relation between you know, its historical discourses and politics, or whether that mediation is always a displacement. Yeah, and whether whether hope should be private, because in a way, for Kafka, you know, hope hope is private and hope is a joke, right? Um, But this, you know, this is the paradox. There's something problematically redemptive about the joke, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay.
Kafka's having it both ways. You know. I, I, don't, I haven't already answered the question, but it's okay. Thank you. I was just going to. I'm going to ask a simple question, which is, um, what, what orients praxis then? So if, if, if hope perennially risks the displacement of politics or drift away from politics, and if politics is defined in some sense by, by praxis, what, what is it that's other to hope that orients praxis, presuming that political praxis is itself kind of futural in some essential way? I mean, the, 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 yeah. <coughs> well, the suppressed issue here is collectivity and the question of, because what, what the discourses of ethics, religion, and art all do, do in their displacement of politics is that they decollectivize practice. Yeah. Right? They're all modes of decollectivizing practice. You know, so that, you, know, you have an ethical self-relation, you have a, you know, a relation to your god, uh, you have a relation to, your, to art, Okay, they're all modes of decollectivization. Um, so that the, you know, the, que the question of politics is the question of the relation between desire and collectivity. And, and, and the crisis of politics in Western capitalist societies is the consequence of the disjunction between desire and collectivity. Okay. But, but because, because desire has, in a certain sense, been captured by the commodity form. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, if you like, it's moralized collectivity. It's taking collectivity away from desire. Okay? And, and, and unless collectivity can be invested with desire, you don't really have an effective politics. And that's desire as separable from, well, not separable from hope, if it's a transcendental illusion, but desire as not identical to well, hope. It, and I'm just thinking about not identical to hope, but also, also non-identical, but related to need. I mean, the, the, the problem for left politics is that historically, left politics thought that it could generate collective practice out of need. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that desire was a kind of um, surplus, right? That was in some way morally problematic, right? Um, and, and, you know, and was taken over by, by the commodity form and became wanton preferences. And, and, and it, didn't, uh, it didn't understand that the, the necessity for desirous relation investments in forms of collectivity. Um, and we live in the kinds of society that, if you like, which require politics to be made of de to be made from desire as well as need. Basically. Yeah. One of the follow-up questions I was going to ask is, what's the difference between actual Bolshevism and Christian Bolshevism? <laughs> <laughs> is there one? Well, well historically, <coughs> well, in those terms, I mean, if wow. or Leninism, let's say, rather than Bolshevism. Um, Not the whole thing, but the question of that is the, the party. So it's, it's the collective is again, but as opposed to the church. No, no, you can have a non, you can have a non messianic view of the Leninist party. I don't want to have any view of the Leninist party, but, but you can have a non messianic one. 
I mean, ba ba basically, the you know, Lukács's view of the Leninist Party is Kantian, right? Or Hegelian, rather. I mean, you know, the party is is the mediation of theory and practice. You don't need to be messianic. But, you know. <coughs> I'm just going to ask Dave's question again. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm going to ask Dave's question again, but in a slightly different way. I'm going to quote you back at yourself because that's always fun. Um, Probably wrote it down wrong. And don't don't misread this as a defence of shopping because it isn't. Oh. It might sound like it, but it isn't. Um, you said we've become the kinds of people who want desires fulfilled in our own lifetime, and that's what makes us apolitical subjects. Uh, that's what, yeah, that's what yeah, I that about right? Something like that. Yeah, okay. So, I guess what I'm interested in All is our desires build in our lifetime. Yeah, Even the collective desires that all are them, inseparable yeah. from collectivity and design. Okay, all of them. Um, so, I, I guess what I want to know is if... That's how sad we have become. Well, that's why shopping's, you know, a, a great relief. <laughs> um, occasionally. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, what I want to know is why religion and art and capitalism and shopping are all transcendental and necessary illusions, as is hope, but uh, politics isn't. Shopping is not a transcendental illusion. Um, what was the other list? <laughs> shopping is definitely not a transcendental illusion. Okay. Religion, religion and capitalism. Hope. Religion, art, capitalism. Capitalism can't be transcendental. Transcendental illusion, capitalism. It's, it's an actuality, like shopping. Um, ah. Okay. So I. I don't understand the question. Okay. It seemed to me that politics got excused the same kind of attention that other things. But it depends what we mean by politics. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about the the effacement of the post-Enlightenment version of the classical concept of politics. Okay? And the classical concept of politics I understand to be the idea of politics as the practice of the constitution of the social. Okay? So in other words, not um, you know, the management of existing social relations by policies of different sorts or whatever, but the constitution of the social in the sense of the active production or transformation of the social relations which constitute the society, right? And the, the modern like, version of that classical concept of politics is that history is the temporal space in which societies are constituted. In other words, these practices of constitution have to be understood historically in, re in relation to like the limits of certain historically received social relations, etc., etc. In other words, they're not, you're not choosing between abstract models. It's not like you know, Aristotle's politics where you, know, you can, you know, so we have an oligarchy or a democracy or a monarchy. That's, that's not the choice. You know, the, the question is, okay, we have received this set of social relations historically. We have been born into them. We live in capitalist society, right? Shall we reproduce or shall we try to change the social relations which constitute our existence? Right? So that the act of reproducing them actively is as, is as political an act as the act of changing them. I mean, we shouldn't forget, you know, conceptualism is a politics. You have to do it. They have to do it. 
have to persuade people that the world should stay the same. Right? It doesn't just stay the same, you have to reproduce it. Okay, so 100,000 people marching in Copenhagen. Um... 100,000 people marching in, Co in Copenhagen. Yes, continue. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Yeah, is, is what? <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's both reproducing and inventing, it's kind of tied by its well, ambitions of being hopeful, people, but at the same time... People marching in Copenhagen is, is doing all kinds of things, but I mean, some of the main things it's doing is it's, it's reproducing the form of the demonstration mm -hmm. during the period of its political nullity, mm -hmm. yeah? It's staging, um, well, it's doing all kinds of things. It, it's displacing the political energy of activists into believing that that political nullity is part of a practice of transformation. I could go on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, from, from a, you know, obviously I speak from the standpoint of a particular concept of politics, but you know, the, the thing that, you know, like I said in, in response to this, this climate change stuff will become serious at a certain point and it will and the idea of the Copenhagen is to, is to if you like do things before it reaches the point in which you're going to have wars but it's not going to no one's even begun to take it seriously states haven't begun to take it seriously and activists haven't begun to take seriously what you have to do these days to get states to take you seriously I'm just, I'm just, at the level of historical concept of politics, I'm just uh, skeptical about. I think the activism changed the whole politics in 2008 with the introduction of that act. So. But I, I, I think I'm thinking of politics in a historical sense in which the passing of Acts of Parliament are kind of, you know, one, one drops of, the, of dew on the, you know. I think one of the interesting arguments about something like climate change is, that's often made in regards to like political praxis, is that the very kind of sense of hopelessness that it inspires people with is not conducive to political praxis. So, you know, that... that, that People go to look at the things on climate change. They think, "Oh my God, we're all screwed. You know, uh, apocalypse is coming." So, I, you know, what can I do about this? You know, I'm I'm hopeless in relation to this. I mean, I I was reading this just because I. No, I've forgotten what I was raising in relation to. There was a question that came up when Mark was asking that I had in my head. Um, but I'm not suggesting these things shouldn't be done because they're part of a process, but they will not fulfill their goal. Their goal is unrelated to their practice. But the existence of their practice might lead to the possibility of other practices. So I'm not... But, yeah, I know why I was thinking... Where does hope sit in a particular kind of mass well, I know administrative what... mode? I guess that's yeah. my question. Well, but, that, yeah, know, hope, 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 like... You know, mass psychology of yes. success... Failure. Tiananmen Square, success, <laughs> failure. <laughs> you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, the, 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 the greatest success in that 
Tiananmen Square was in, was in a was an event, but not an act, really, in, in, in the sense of... I, I suppose what, what's at stake here is whether the ambitions, the historical ambitions of a concept of politics which is thought at the level of, of history, yeah, is still plausible uh, and and possible, yeah? I mean, that, that, that's what's at stake. I mean, Tiananmen Square, you know, is a very important symbolic you know, representation. Um, the politics of Tiananmen Square itself bear no relation to the possible future transformation of Chinese society. Um, you know, the possible future transformation of Chinese society may require it as you know, one of a number of minor conditions, but the politics of Tiananmen Square are utterly unrelated to the historical intelligibility of politics in China. Can you speak into the microphone? Because we're recording the whole event. <laughs> no, I was going to say that the, yeah. the uh, events of Tiananmen Square were defined and became a political force by virtue of what effect they had on, on the mentality of the ruling yeah. elites in the rest of the, 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 they, the former they allowed, communist bloc. They allowed people in the West to continue no, I don't, I don't to, think think, to think of radical liberal politics within a Cold War problematic of dissidents. I, I, I don't, I mean, for me, I was, I, was, I was saying the opposite, really. I was thinking that the important thing, really, was that, that it exercised the minds of all those kind of forgotten men of yesterday, you know, Hanukkah, of Yakesh, of uh, Yaruzelski, you know, all those, all those yeah. individuals who couldn't go through with the Tiananmen option for whatever reason. They, they just regarded it as not being in their interest to pursue that because basically they, they didn't feel that they could face down or had the social base any longer to face down that kind of dissidence within their own social structures. They didn't have a huge hinterland of peasantry who were still benefiting from their rule in the way that the Chinese bureaucracy had. And that's, that was the key thing, that effectively Tiananmen had the effect on the subsequent revolutions in 89 by making those possible. Because they couldn't, they couldn't afford to, to stage a massacre. Know, and at one I mean, time, Hanukkah, <laughs> people like Hanukkah would have, would have definitely countenanced that as the solution. I mean, my friends in Eastern Europe won't like this, and they don't like it, but I don't think there were any revolutions in Eastern Europe in 1989. Well, whatever you call them, I mean, the, 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 the point is that those kind of movements would have been met by tanks and guns, as they had been in 56, as they had been at other points, and they weren't on that occasion. And because of Tiananmen. Not because of Tiananmen, no, utterly unrelated. No, I, I don't think it is. Utterly unrelated. Because it, because it demonstrated the difference in the balance of power between those, those different states, within those different states. I, I have a more cynical <laughs> position on the relation between states in Eastern Europe and the transition. <laughs> I don't think China was a, an issue. But, but it's enormously important, that, you know, within this imaginary of of, symbol, you know, of demonstration. But I, I, 
These things are, you know, we're still at the stage of all these things being being coded within the terms of, of dissidence, which is a concept of you know, like, uh, the Cold War. Right? Um, Reflective critical component of the relationship between the, uh, uh, the fall of communism and, and in the, the Berlin Wall and Tiananmen Square. Could it be a re reflective critical component? So we look at it in terms of. I, don't, I mean, it, it depends what it depends what you think the practices were which led to. You know what happened in eighty nine, ninety in the, in those various countries, which is which is complicated. I don't think it's to do with with reflection. I think it's to do with symbolism. With what? This relation. It's to do with what? It's to do with symbolic representation, and the, and and the symbolic representation. You know, is the symbolic representation of the heroic liberal individual, um, and. <coughs> The heroic liberal individuals who were involved in those processes in Eastern Europe <coughs> discovered very quickly, within two or three years, you know, that the, these social processes would run over them, and they did run over them. Um, Uh, a lot of politics. It's, it's why they get, that's why he knows. It's a cheat. Mike. Yeah, that's, that's a lot better. Sorry. Um, just before uh, the before the, uh, the, the, the end of beginning of December, there was a there was a rather large conference which I attended, and you were there also, and we all discussed something about politics and worlds. And there was, uh, of course, I'm talking about uh, a large discussion about Alain Badiou's theory of the subject. Of course, in that book, he uh, actually claims, I'm sorry, I'm, this, it's just regarding politics. Okay, which I don't know too much. <laughs> so you're going to probably correct me on this. But it, I mean, what would constitute a thoroughly political revolution then? Because, well, with Badiou, there, in that particular book, which has quite precarious, I, I don't want you just very quickly. Would you would you agree that you know something bringing up China that the Cultural Revolution was uh, kind of authentic or the closest form of culture, you know, political revolution? Authenticity is an existential category. It's not really a forget authenticity, but um, okay. The closest form. You know, for, for Badiou, the issue is not really revolutions or the social, the, 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 the political. For Badiou, the concept is event. Right? In other words, what's the, you know, how, how extreme is the rupture? Right? To, to what extent is there a genuine rupture? That's, that's his issue. I, I, don't, I don't think that revolutions are best thought in terms of their... quasi-theological uh, voiding of the realm of being. I don't think that's what they are. Um, but the issue is also not just political revolutions, because the issue is social revolutions. The issue is the process of change. 
In other words, what, what's an issue in, in Eastern Europe is the process of social transition, which is kind of you know, this so-called transition. Um, that's the, the, the revolution is the disciplining of Eastern Europe, populations of Eastern European societies into capitalist social relations. That's the revolution. Okay? That's the force, that's the process of violent, you know, disciplinary social change that is occurring. I mean, there are, there are you know, politics offers you noble points of transformation in relation to particular relations of power. But politics is essentially about the longer processes of, of social transformation. And that's what's happening in Eastern Europe, and that's what's happening, you know, and that's why all the people who were involved actively in 89-90 in Eastern Europe, you know, are now, you know, writing all these books about the post-communist condition, you know, and about the whole question of this what is it actually a very bizarre concept, the concept of post-communism. Uh, because they're trying to, if you like, hang on to the idea that they might still be in transition. Because if they're still in transition, they might go somewhere else. So, so the, the concept of post-communism, in a way, functions in, in those discourses you know, to mark the hope that they might not merely become just like in that, any other capitalist society, which is what they are uh, becoming, uh, will become. Um, I'm not sure if I'm answering the question, but. This, this is what I mean by the classical concept of politics. The classical concept of politics is about social constitution or the constitution of the social. It's about the social relations that constitute societies. And they are transformed slowly over generations. And there are, there are if you like, important noble points in those transformations. But they're, tra they're transformed slowly and structurally over generations through different forms of collective practice. And they're, you know, the, these are projects which you know, have historically been unconscious, right? Nobody undertook the transition from feudalism to capitalism, right? No one said, you know, bourgeois brothers, let us, you know, make the transition from feudalism to capitalism. It took, you know, 300 <laughs> years or whatever as a, as, a, as a transition. So this is the problem about, you know, your relationship to practices that have a meaning only after you're dead. If, if, you, if your desire cannot be disengaged from its fulfillment in your lifetime, you cannot participate in these political processes. And with these political processes, it will not happen. But then what, what gives that collective, if, if this is about collective praxis, because I suppose the retort to that from someone like Chantal Mouffe would be that for there to be some kind of mobilization of, of a collective, then you need things like hope. You need, in fact, irrational. It's not the position I have to be shared, but I mean, that, that would be an obvious response yeah, to no, that. Obviously, there, there's an argument to be made about desire, but in a way, hope is, hope is very rational, actually, because it's the, it's the subjection of desire to expectation. It's the recovery of desire by expectation. Um, You know, hope is hope is a category of the Enlightenment philosophy of religion. Um, you know, the thing the thing is that after Freud, most things that you call irrational just turn out to be differently rational. Yeah, sure. Right, and it's true that we need a lot of differently rational things. 
they may not be you know, rational in the sense of possessed by our reason, but you know. Well, I suppose I'm thinking back to your, your remark towards the beginning in Pascal about Latin America, about yeah. liberation theology and about things like populism. Yeah. You know, what, what, because Latin America has become such a site of hope for the global left, not just the Latin American left. You know, the, the left looks that, to South America. That's a symbolic representation, like yeah. Tiananmen Square. Um, but, it, but is that is that really without kind of consequence elsewhere, even if it's unmoored from its liberation? I, 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 I think the political cultures of the Western left have become wholly liberalised. I mean, I, I don't think you know how many people. You know, who want to think of Bolivia as a moment of hope and general social transformation, have any sense of the social and the social political dynamics of contemporary Bolivian yeah. society and what is driving these various processes and what you know, contradictions between regions and classes are determining what's going on in Bolivia. We don't have a political culture anymore that that leads people to think that they need to know that in order to know about the meaning of politics in Bolivia because it's become a symbolic representation. But you're not simply using hope as some catch-all term that would apply to things like targets or the way in which New Labour has shifted its targets, targets to aspirations <laughs> or, you know, eight, five-year plans or anything, sp yeah, no, no. anything, in, anything manageable, but simply in the future. It's, it's, it means something else, surely. The, the, the Otherwise, object, it's a... The object, uh, classically, the ob in the modern, as opposed to the theological version, in hope always concerns happiness. Okay? Hope is always about happiness... And you know, kind of says, you know, it's about happiness, intensively, extensively, and protensively. He says, yeah. in other words, it's about happiness across the range of all of the aspects of your life. It's about intensifying the happiness of each aspect of your life, and it's a, it, it's about protension. It's about it's, it's about the durational extension of that happiness throughout your life. And these are the three, if you like, conditions of happiness for which you hope. You, you hope for total happiness. Right? That's what you hope for. And you personally. That was, but then that, was, <laughs> that was my first question, was, which I don't think you answered, which was the, it used to be the hope for peace, which was a suspension of, rather than a fulfillment of desires. It's a suspension of the structure of sub, you know, subjective you know, desire. But, but, but in camp, perpetual peace is a condition of happiness. It's not... You hope for it as a condition of the thing you hope for. You don't hope for peace. Peace has no value other than as a condition. Yeah, linking up almost perfectly to what you're saying, I'm just wondering what, what's the tenuous balance point where hope becomes, instead of like, a, like a, a tool for transformation, it becomes a means of control and like the hold of action, I suppose, in a political and a personal like level, like I mean, today would you say that hope's yeah. uh, instead instead of being like a means for revolution, it's being more held as <laughs> like um, some, something which like it, it holds off action. Well, it, it's about how you're able to relate to your own transcendental illusions, right? That's what it's about. It's, <coughs> it's about It's about whether you can, if you like, refunction 
turn of these like impulses or drives or intentionalities while being conscious you know, of, of, the, of the basic illusory structure of them. So, so it, it, it's about... Because the thing about transcendental illusion is it's necessary. So knowing that it's an illusion doesn't get rid of it. So the question is, well, how do we live with our transcendental illusions? Right? How do we relate to them? That's the issue. In other words, how do you relate? You don't get rid of hope. How do you relate to hope? And how could you use hope in a way which was not illusory? Go on. <laughs> well, that's right. Now, you see, in Latin America, people think they can do this with liberation theology because they think that they can take, if you like, the, the religious character of their popular constituency as a given, as like a social given, yeah? and that they can then, in some sense, do something with that. I'm not, you know, the history of the, history of the theological dimension of those practices is not great. So I'm not... I think that that's one way which we can't do it, put it that way. But, but because that's to, if you like, that's to say we can render hope politically productive by submitting to our transcendental illusions. Yeah. By, by, by investing in the illusion of the illusions. Um, I think the days for that are historically past. I, I, think it's, I think it's about something, I think it's about, well, the traditional relationship between desire and expectation has to be rethought as a relationship between desire and history. Right, and that's, so the question is, if you like, what is the historical status of, of desire? So it really is, it's a, in a sense, it's about your relation to your own desire, but you know, in a sense, everything is about that, right? Um, but in a historical sense. But the people who write about desire have never been able to hang on to history while writing about desire. That's the problem. Even when they think they're writing about history, but they're not. Um, so then maybe the solution is some kind of contextualization between the two, like a balance. I don't think that these things don't have solutions, right? <laughs> <laughs> We have to give up on the solutions. We have to kind of just try and practice in a slightly different way. <laughs> I was going to ask a devil advocate's question, which was, might you might not argue the reverse, that the problem is when you know your illusion is an illusion. Actually, you need your illusion not to be apparent to you as illusion. I mean, to go back to your example that the bourgeoisie didn't, think of themselves as liberating the bourgeoisie, they thought themselves as doing a whole range of other kinds of things because they didn't know their illusions were in fact illusions. I mean, you, and you could make the argument for you know, Christianity in the same way, I think it's right, if we leave aside Latin American liberation, there was about civil rights in America, you know, the importance of the church to civil rights in America. But, but that's but, pragmatic, that's a, that's a practical issue. I mean. In a way, this brings us back to art, unfortunately, but um, because you know historically, the val you know historically, art has been critically valued because it's the form of illusion that self-consciously presents itself as an illusion. Right. So, 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 in a way, in relation to this question of how you relate to illusions, in a way, art is the um, 
art is the model for a not exactly disillusioned relation to illusion, for a self-conscious relation to illusion. Um, you know, so, so that insofar as art is performed, you know, has a relation to politics here, it is as a model of the self-consciousness of illusion. When you were talking about the, the secularization of, of hope, and I don't know if one could make a, a link between um, ideas of messi messianic ideas and hope, but between, say, Christian and, say, Judaic idea of Messiah, the temporal differences, yeah. do you think, especially with this idea of waiting, yeah. which is what you're really talking about in yeah. terms of a genuine idea of hope? I was thinking. You were talking about Beckett, but you're talking about Kafka. I was thinking actually more about Beckett at that point. Do you yeah. think there's a, with these temporal structuring of the present to the future, there are vestiges of that still at work with those theological, the vestiges of, yeah. I don't know, theological, which Benjamin was obviously talking about with his notion of the, if you're waiting for a Messiah, you are, you are in a present, you're perpetually. You are, you are perpetually preparing yourself. Yeah, that's not really a Benjaminian position to wait. I mean, um, because the, you know, the, the Benjamin negative messianist knows the Messiah is not coming, right? There's a sense in which they're not waiting because they know he's not coming, right? Um, what are they doing? They're, what they're doing is that they're is that they're constructing uh, history from the standpoint of the arrival of the Messiah. Yeah. They're, 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 if you like, they're thinking history from the standpoint of redemption in order to think it as a whole. Um, whereas other people are waiting. Right? Um, waiting is a, is a different a different kind of modality. Kafka's not not waiting. I mean, people, you know, Kafka's characters are waiting, but they know nobody's coming. But they they are in a world in which, despite the fact that they know no one's coming, they have no option but to wait, yeah. because they don't feel like socially put in the position of waiting. They don't feel like they're condemned to wait for something they know is not coming. Right. Um, I mean, I don't know. Theologically, I mean, one of the things that's, that's in a way quite interesting about the recur text about this stuff and hope is that he's interested, if you like, in the theological, um, the Christian theological contest in the post-war period between existential theology and eschatology. Okay, and the question is, you know, the, the, the dispute between someone like Bultmann and Moltmann is, you know, you know, is hope an, is hope a category of existential theology? Well, it's, it's, it's hope category of eschatology. Um, and the reason that I, that I find recur interesting, what allies recur to people like Benjamin, and et cetera, is that he, want, he wants to say that hope, hope is a, uh, hope is, is fundamentally an eschatological concept and secondarily an existential concept. And that if you, if you like, if you merely existentialize hope, 
um, you know, in a kind of Kierkegaardian way. This, you know, for, for Kierkegaard, hope, hope is the passion for the possible. And this is the phrase that that, um, that Ricoeur takes from from Kierkegaard. But hope is the passion for the possible. So it's kind of, insofar as it's passion for the possible, it's politicizing. But insofar as that passion for, for the possible is merely existential, it is individualizing. It has no collectivity. So, so only if hope is construed eschatologically can the passion for the possible become historical. I think yeah. on the passion for the possible, we are going to have to uh, end. Um, I'd like to thank all of you for coming, and I'd like to thank Peter very much for his talk. So I think, I think there are some last bits of uh, wine. Thank you to those for coming to this salon and thank you for coming to the other three salons, those of you who are here. And there will be a new series of salons some point later in the year. Starting in May. Starting in May. There you go. What's the website?